0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Today, we're going to take a look at how public health infrastructure, once a bulwark for protection of our nation's most vulnerable people, has become privatized and weaker producing many of the public health crises we live with today. Two professors will talk to us about how that happened and how things may be turning toward the better. Now, that's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson and as always, thanks for tuning in. These days, public health crises seem to be just about everywhere. The Flint water crisis made global news highlighting how attempts to cut costs on basic services like clean water could lead to high levels of lead in the water. As a result, an entire city was exposed to poison. And crisis-led levels in water aren't uncommon, as similar scenarios have been uncovered in cities all around the US, and most recently in Benton Harbor, another underserved Michigan community. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. A lot of low-income communities don't have access to safe areas to play or clean air to breathe something that disproportionately impacts black and brown Americans, like those who live near the Marathon Plant here in southwest Detroit. In terms of death rates due to gun violence, numbers in the U.S., especially in our biggest cities, are similar to those of developing countries like Iraq or Jordan, Thailand or Somalia. In 2020, 28 million Americans did not have health insurance And I haven't even referenced the COVID pandemic, which has killed more than 750,000 Americans, disproportionately devastating poorer, browner communities. According to some recent scholarship, public health programs once focused more on public infrastructure and the health of the most vulnerable in our society. We used to be a nation that invested in a way that provided a stronger and more reliable safety net For the public health interests of our poorest people. But during the latter half of the 20th century, that has changed as our public health focus has shifted to curing specific diseases rather than ensuring that the public health infrastructure is in good enough shape to limit the spread of those diseases in the first place. Our guests today have thought a lot about that history the present and where we're headed in the future with our public health infrastructure. And that is where we begin the conversation. Amy Fairchild is Dean and Professor of the College of Public Health at The Ohio State University. Uh, Amy Fairchild, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: And Tricia Miranda Hardstuff is a public health associate professor at Wayne State University. Uh, She's the founder and director of Wayne State's hub for evaluation and learning Detroit, it's called HEAL. Uh, Dr. Miranda, welcome to Detroit today.
3: Thanks and good morning.
1: So Professor Fairchild, I'm gonna start with you. Can you explain just a bit of the history of approaches and aims of public health institutions in the U.S. There was a time in the early 20th century when public health officials focused more on the public side of public health, including things like improving sanitation, uh, relieving overcrowded housing, and improving unsafe working conditions. Can you take us back to that time and explain what was going on?
2: Sure thing, Jake, and, and and thank you for that question. So if you look back at the mid-19th um, century, this period in time in which there was this enormous social and economic change in the United States. We were becoming an urban nation. We had massive amounts of immigration to some of our big industrial cities in the, in the Northeast, but also to, to cities in the, in, the, in the South. And we began to see the rise um, after, after a colonial era in which um, health had been actually pretty good. We began to see deterioration of national health. And it was characterized by epidemic after epidemic, typhus, cholera, typhus, cholera, um, uh, long simmering tuberculosis rates that were, that were going, going up. And uh, about mid-century, uh, public health became this um, shared, organizing, unifying concept in which socially active physicians, ministers, Labor activists um, um, uh, begin to argue that we needed state-based public health. We needed health departments that weren't, didn't just pop up in response to an epidemic, like a board of health, and then and then disappear. We needed permanent health departments to begin to manage um, the social the social disorder, but the epidemic crises that were having reverberating effects throughout our our country and. But, but even as we created health departments beginning in say the 1860s, they had this very broad view and they were characterized by these, still these incredible alliances of reformers who saw public health in everything that they did, who philanthropists who created bathhouses saw that as a public health initiative. And of, of course they, they were corporate philanthropists like, like Carnegie and the Milbank mm-hmm. Foundation. And, um, and over time, really after we've discovered germ theory and discovered this idea, well, that the thing that causes disease is not necessarily miasmas rising out of the, the ground or dirt or vice um, or even poverty. It was it was germs. And public health began to narrow its focus and shed some of those. Um old alliances that had made it a real vehicle for social reform, for housing reform, for labor reform, for environmental environmental reform. Hmm.
1: And uh, something that uh, fueled that as you as you point out is the 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 growth of northern cities, the the urbanization of America. also talk just a little about how that was accompanied by a change in demographics uh, that that America started to become a more diverse place and a place where there were more people of different backgrounds living in in close quarters. I I feel like you can't really separate that from uh, the industrialization and and sort of urbanization of, of the country.
2: No, you you can't. You had you had twenty five million immigrants coming from um, Eastern and Southern Europe, and they, uh, to Americans at that time, um, and by the and these were Americans who had come from Northern and Western Europe who had colonized the United States. Um, they looked different. They sounded different. They their worship was different. Their language was different. And and these groups were very much tied in to the social deterioration and the health deterioration that people were were seeing. And of course it was, it was caused by overcrowding enormous and enormous poverty and um, miserable working conditions. So there was, there was in fact, this complex notion of public health. Uh, There was a moral strain to it that saw a need to reform some of these populations, but that also understood So so saw saw immigrants in pejorative terms, but also understood that health wasn't just a matter of of choice. Health really depended on being able to work in good uh, conditions. It depended on having a room in a tenement house. It depended on having some kind of density control in tenement houses. It depended on having clean water. It depended on the regulation of things like milk, that when you fed people swill milk, milk polluted with with the offal from from say slaughterhouses, that you didn't give populations a, a fighting, a fighting chance. And of course the notion took hold too that this affected not only the working class, poor, but it affected the, the, the middle class and the and the elite. So there was this notion that really the health of all depended on providing some of this basic infrastructure, these basic supports to the, the poorest. But it was, a again, it was a concept in which public health wasn't just seen as a, a safety net. It wasn't just looking at the interests of, of poor people. It was looking at the The whole, and it was all tied up in this progressive era idea that we needed not just health reform, we also needed radical political reform too. Mm. We needed we needed populations to be able to engage in in democracy and shape the shape our and shape their shared future. Yeah.
1: So, Professor Fairchild, talk about what happened, what changed, and how did public health become? So individualized or focused on uh, individual concerns and in specific diseases rather than this grander vision of public health support for everybody, regardless of their their ethnic or economic background
2: well it it, it really hinged on a, a remarkable enthusiasm in what science was was telling us about the power of of, of vaccinations, about the power of understanding the chain of transmission from one person to another, whether it was smallpox or, or typhus, that you could control some of this infectious disease transmission through things like quarantine and isolation, through, through vaccination. And, and for a period in time, this notion that, that you have these additional tools, really resonated quite well with this broader environmental, social reformist approach. But beginning around World War I, the, this note, the seed takes hold that you know what it's cheaper if we focus on on what you might call the renegade few, those who are, are not behaving well, those who are continuing to go to work even though they've got tuberculosis and um, it seemed like a, a more efficient way than trying to do the politically hard work of reforming um, reforming tenements, of reforming uh, coal mining, of reforming in the, the foundry industry. Uh, but also it was a moment in time in which public health began to create, we began to create schools of public health and, and programs in public health and they saw Science as a way to gain a kind of social prestige. And they were more or less mapping themselves onto what happened in medicine. Um, At one point in the United States, hospitals were the last place you'd want to go if you were sick. There were places you were going to go to die. But as medicine began to become a a scientific, laboratory-based, clinical research-based discipline, um, public health tries to map itself onto that same... Trajectory, and it begins to shed some of these some of these other elements that had been so core to to really the profound transformations in our health system that happened between the 1860s and and, and World War One. We saw this incredible drop in infectious diseases because of all of this this effort so it seemed like we just didn't need to do that anymore and to to have the kind of prestige that medicine had to have the kind of um it was the allure of science that that pulled public health in and so when you saw the first schools of public health academic public health begin to be created around this notion of of bacteriology and let's focus on the, let's focus on the German, let's shed, let's keep our eyes to the microscope and let's shed these messy, expensive, very difficult projects that required really a kind of politics of public health that, um, that the new practitioners of public health felt was too difficult and too expensive. Wow.
0: Wow.
1: So, uh, Professor Miranda, I want to bring you into the conversation here and have you first talk about your training in public health uh, at the University of Michigan, for instance, Uh, as a relatively new professor in the field. How were you taught to understand public health uh, and, and its importance? And how does this tension between kind of individualized notions of public health and the broader vision of uh, public health, uh, how does that play out in, in your work? But how did that play out also in your, in your education?
3: Sure. So I, I was introduced to public health um, just over 20 years ago. And I, I arrived at U of M seeking a master's of public health degree, my MPH. And at that point, you, U of M. I ended up choosing because it was the top-ranked public health program that didn't, that did not require at least two years of post-bachelor's professional experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I was I was a first generational generation Pell eligible undergrad. I felt if I continued on into the workforce, I may never return to school. And so I was looking for a direct program. And as Dr. Fairchild was describing, I think at at that point, schools of public health were largely seeking to be independent from schools of medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that definitely contrasts with today where the newer accredited MPH programs are affiliated within schools of medicine and not necessarily independent schools of public health. Um, and that might um, be what's reflected in some of the patterns that we're seeing um, on a on a stronger disease-based focus. Um, but I would say that's not how how I was trained. It was I was trained in a highly interdisciplinary fashion. A traditional school of public health has environmental science, folks, biostatistics, epidemiology. who We've all become intimately familiar with. Um, the health policy or management and administration mm-hmm. group, um, and then health behavior or health education, the, um, which was where I was trained, and I ended up staying for my PhD, um, looking to see what is it that influences people's health behaviors. And what we largely focused on was, yes, we act as individuals, But there are much greater social determinants that influence our behaviors, that influence the behaviors of populations. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, um, larger structural determinants have um, gained broader attention, right, in the last year. um, If you think about um, racism and trauma and how um, dealing with these complex issues actually... At our cores, influence our opportunities, our you know our access to safe neighborhoods, for example, to to be able to exercise outdoors or um, you know resources to um, be physically active, and so all of that really drove um, my work today.
1: And, and do you feel? Sometimes, at least, as though you're running up uh, upstream or counter counter to, to to the trend. Or do you feel like the trend now is more toward that that more public idea of public health and and public infrastructure? We were just talking, of course, about how things went went away from that kind of notion. Uh, do you feel like they're coming back?
3: Are coming back, you know. At Wayne State, we have an undergraduate program of public health, and um, I think it's a it's a unique student population. And I feel like I have a greater impact when I'm speaking to those students um, and giving them those formative skills that they're going to need um, to become that next generation of public health providers. You know, there's there's some basic major functions of public health. Um, that um, are key to uh, educating our students about, but ultimately, you know, monitoring individuals' health status, you know, understanding how to investigate these health problems and empower people about health issues. Um, those are core, and I think um, increasing the diversity of our public health workforce is, is key towards um, bringing public health back around to um, its core of protecting and improving the health of people and their communities.
1: Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we're gonna continue this conversation about public health, uh, what it means and how it plays out in our lives, how public infrastructure influences uh, our experience. Uh, we want to hear from you, the listeners, as well. What do you believe should be the role of the city and the state for keeping citizens healthy? What do you make of the government's public health response, for instance, to COVID 19? You think officials have done a good job, particularly when the virus first started spreading. Also tell us, are there broader public health measurements that you believe should be improving our lives? Should we be more focused on making sure everyone has access to clean water, to safe outdoor space, and clean air to breathe? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter And put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
0: WDET is your place for open dialogue.
3: The music you love.
0: Real news and in-depth analysis. And
3: cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 101.9
0: 101.9 WDET is your public radio station.
1: This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour are Amy Fairchild, who's a dean and professor at the College of Public Health at The Ohio State University. Also with us is Trisha Miranda Hartstuff, who is a public health associate professor at Wayne State University and founder and director of Wayne State's hub for evaluation and learning. We're talking about public health and public health infrastructure in our, comp- in our country. Um, the consequences we live with from the lack of investment in Research and the infrastructure itself around public health, the instances we see where public health infrastructure fails. We've seen a lot of that lately here in the state of Michigan. Um, We're also talking about whether there is a shift, a welcome shift, back to a focus on that kind of infrastructure instead of having folks who work in the public health realm focused on specific diseases and uh, individual kinds of work. Uh, We wanna hear from you as well about what you think about public health infrastructure, whether we're spending enough time or money or energy focusing on making sure people have access to clean water, to safe outdoor space or clean air. Uh, How well is our public health infrastructure performing for instance, during the pandemic that we're all living through. Still, are we doing the right things? Are we focused on all of the right things? Or have we become too individualized, too privatized in the way that we think about public health? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we get to listeners, I do wanna talk about COVID-19, of course, and the ways in which our public health infrastructure has shaped uh, all of our experiences. Uh, I I wonder, uh, uh, Dr. Fairchild, I'm gonna start with you. Um, I wonder if you can talk about how prepared our public health infrastructure was for something like this and whether that relates to what we were talking about earlier, which was that there has been this profound shift away from the kind of investment in public infrastructure that we had become used to in this country.
2: Thanks, Thanks Stephen. So there was an, an, an investment in, in public health after September 11th, you saw money and, and it was not just because of September 11th, it was because of the anthrax attacks that turned out to be unrelated that, that followed. Um, and that money was, a lot of it was focused on preparedness. It wasn't necessarily focused on the basic infrastructure of public health. And as often happens in the context of a crisis, We put put attention and resources into something. And as our sense of threat as a population fades, the money fades too. So what we have seen over the past decade is declining numbers of employees. And in public health, staff has decreased. We don't have interoperable surveillance systems. We can't link, for instance, um, vaccine registries to COVID registries to diabetes registries and, or or registries that track chronic conditions. And, and what we see now is that, in for instance, in 2017, um, state and local governments spent less than 3% of their budgets on public health. More was spent on policing. For example, more was spent on on hospital care Um, and and hospital care, of course, you know, I don't want to go to a historian or a dean when I'm sick. I want to go to a hospital. But unfortunately, we need hospitals when it's when it's too late, when all of those structural forces that have led to created exposures that give us cancer, that give us lung disease. Uh, have have had their effect, and I I do agree with my my colleague that within within public health, health departments, academic public health, there has been a, a shift, and I would say it's over the past several years in really focusing on health equity and the things that we need to do to remove those obstacles to good health in in the first place um NIH funding however doesn't necessarily reflect those priorities if you look at NIH funding the vast majority goes to clinical care or or genetics or genomics and very little comparatively is 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 available for for uh prevention
4: hmm. uh
1: Dr Miranda I wonder if you can talk specifically about our experience here in Metro Detroit, uh, how we could have been better prepared for the COVID outbreak, if, if at all, and what, how you see us, I guess, responding now as as we're into, I guess, it'd be a fourth wave. Uh, the, the numbers here over the last week have just been overwhelming, and I think we all are starting to fear that we're headed toward another another dark space with, with COVID-19. H- how much does the public infrastructure play a role in all of that?
3: Well, in this area of health equity, I would say that's been the greatest weakness in our public health system, um, working to address health equity, perhaps too little, too late. Um, in this particular case, for for decades, um, you know, we've been working to address health disparities, but health disparities really only made it into the vernacular and you heard it across the media, you know, within this last year. Um, So what we saw with COVID um, was this exacerbation of health disparities that had already been prevalent. We already knew certain populations had less access to care, um, had poor quality of care, Um, and so so COVID just magnified the the disparities that populations um, experienced. Um, And and unfortunately, I think we will continue to see the trickle down of that as you're starting to hear more messaging about the importance of continuing on with preventive care, preventive Mm. screening Mm. Um, previously. Um, you know, I have published work on the disparities in breast cancer screening and specific populations that disproportionately, um, were screened at, at lower rates and diagnosed, um, at later stages, at earlier ages, um, for breast cancer. And, um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna continue, um, to see that, um, as, as it goes on, as people have put off the important screening. um, And then, you know, there is there's that, that issue of, of trust that, you know, universities created some of those issues that are out there in communities um, um, where we should be trusted partners. Um, we have to continue to work to to prove ourselves to the community that they they can believe the information that we're sharing with them and that we are actually there um to improve their health and their outcomes
1: right right Uh, again 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones Uh, give us a call and let us know what you think about the state of our public health infrastructure either from the standpoint of the pandemic uh, from the water crises we see in several places here in Michigan uh, or just the state of clean air and clean water and safe places to play and be outdoors. Uh, What do you think uh, of where we are in terms of that public health infrastructure and do you think we focus enough on public health infrastructure anymore. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Matt in Detroit. Matt, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for taking my call, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Sure. <clears throat> I wanted to talk about this when Young was on the other day, um, discussing programs for the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I sorely, I've worked for three departments, rec, health, and fire. Far and away, health was the hardest workers. Um, we did excellent work. We were a multidiscipline team. I did the social work component, but they eliminated it when they eliminated Herman Kiefer. We were funded through the Older Americans Act, applied for a grant each year. Dealt with, excuse me, dealt with the most at-risk seniors in Detroit, Highland Park, Hamtramck, and the Five Points. We didn't have many clients in the points, um, but yeah, it was it was the most rewarding job I've had for the city. I worked for the city for 43 years, hmm. and health. Those people worked very hard. Um, we had nutrition. We had we hooked people up with community resources, um, provided meds, transportation, um, linked them up with whatever they needed, Yeah. whether it be linking them with um, Focus Hope or... Um,
1: yeah, other kinds of supports. Um, Matt, I wonder if you can tell us if, if you lost your job with the city because of the cuts to the to the health department and we should be clear those cuts were actually made before the bankruptcy and they were made in, in anticipation that the the city might not be able to avoid bankruptcy in other words they were they were an attempt to to not go into bankruptcy of course they cut the the health department and we we still ended up uh, uh being bankrupt but man i wonder if that is the reason you no longer work for fire the t-
0: Go ahead, Matt. I saw the writing on the wall. I saw it coming.
1: I see. So you so, you transferred, yeah.
0: Yes. So I had an opportunity to go to fire, so I went to fire. Yeah, uh,
1: Matt. That's a. I'm glad you called and and shared uh, that experience, uh, uh, Doctor Miranda. This this uh, the scrimping that we do around here uh, in in government. Uh, which affects all kinds of different parts of government of course uh, but but as Matt points out it's had an effect on the city's ability to reach out to its citizens to to help them with with public health imperatives the the, the shrinking of the health department uh, is I think a, a sort of cardinal sign of all of that
3: um i I would agree yeah. And and certainly, as I was discussing issues of health equity, a lot of times um, that's a highly underfunded area. We see Mm -hmm. that um, with health departments across the country. Um, I would say they are historically um, underfunded, and um, there's a lot of work to be done in those areas to to pull in additional funding. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Again, Matt, I really appreciate the call Uh, and the comments. Let's go uh, to a a social media comment. Anthony on Twitter writes that there's no quality of public health because there are so many uninsured individuals in America. No amount of Band-Aids will cover that wound. Uh, Dr. Fairchild, I wonder if you can talk about the role that insurance, the way that we approach insurance in in this country, the way that's changed even uh, over the last 12 years that we've had um, the health health insurance reform, the massive health insurance reform, I- is that an example of us investing more in public health, or an example of a place where we still need to invest even more?
2: Well, I would say yes and no. So, on on the one hand, um, if you don't have insurance, and say you're working in a in a in a restaurant or in a grocery store. and you get get sick and you have to pay out of pocket, what that ends up doing is it it can drive you further into, it can drive you further into debt. Um, If you get sick, you might lose your job. And think about COVID-19. If you feel like you've got COVID-19 symptoms, you can't afford to take time off. Um, you, You can't afford healthcare, You're you're in a real you're in a real bind. So I would say, from from that perspective, investing in health insurance, universal health insurance, is a support for for public health. But again, think about those circumstances. Think about um, the inability of people in certain sectors of our society to have those paid days off. And, and that's what Dr. Miranda and I are, are pointing us to, is if we only think about the care end and don't think about those things that put us at risk in the first place, partic- particularly people who are most at risk. So the people who are most at risk in the context of the current pandemic, it's not you, it's not me, it's not Dr. Miranda. We're, we're able to work from our offices, we're able to social distance. It's those people who can't afford to do that because of the nature of their of their jobs. Mm-hmm. So, so we have to think about um, um, how we how we think about employment too. That's just as important as how we think about um, health insurance.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, Anthony, thanks very much uh, for that uh, for that comment. Uh, I, I also want to talk a little more about. Um, Things like physical infrastructure and the ways in which we either invest in that physical infrastructure to make sure that that there's uh, opportunity for people to have clean air and clean water and and safe places. Um, uh, Dr. Miranda, I want to talk specifically about here in Detroit and areas like Southwest. Detroit, where we have the marathon plant and, and several other industrial presences. Uh, We we talk a lot about the threat that they pose to, to, to public health. Uh, I wonder what you make of the ways in which we talk about that and, and think about the things that we want to do differently or could do differently for that, and it, there's no question when we, when we look at all the statistics about clean air and uh, clean water, that, that that area of the city comes up, not just in terms of the state of Michigan, but nationally uh, as a place where uh, there are some real problems. Uh, the public health infrastructure, it seems to me, ought to be more attuned to the idea that, uh, that we can't have people living that way, or we shouldn't have people. Uh, living that way.
3: Yeah, I think I think public health is well in tuned to um, the additional health burden faced by populations that live in some of these communities, um, particularly southwest Detroit, where um, these airborne exposures add to increased rates um, and risks of cardiovascular disease, for example, because of um, some of those um some of the pollutants that they are exposed to. Um, and I I think, you know, I think that that's difficult um, because of, you know, relocating people in communities isn't necessarily a, a viable solution for some, but perhaps um, working in partnership with um, some of the companies to provide um, um, you know, air <laughs> air quality monitoring, um, yeah. remediation for um, the poor air quality. Um, it, it it's a it's a difficult situation for sure to, to navigate and um, and without without the proper funds um, to address the situations. All all we really have is education. Mm-hmm. Right of, of the individuals who who work in those communities, um, advocacy efforts um, to to work to find alternative solutions um, um, alternative trucking routes through neighborhoods um, or adjustment of time of day of some of those um, idling trucks over ambassador bridge, for example um, there there have been people who've been looking working on this for decades yeah.
1: Um, okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about public health and public health infrastructure. We want to continue to hear from you as well on the phones and on social media. Heather in Beverly Hills, you'll be up when we get back. If you want to join her, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about the state of our public health infrastructure, our focus on making sure people have access to clean air and clean water clean places uh, to be outside. Are we doing what we should? Should we be thinking of it all really differently? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, for tuning in, before we get back to our program, I want to remind you that before the pandemic hit, WDET planned an excursion to one of my favorite places, Spain. The plans were put on hold because of the pandemic, but now the trip has been rescheduled for April of 2022. So come experience Madrid with me, ride the high-speed train from Madrid Madrid to Cordoba, visit Valencia and Barcelona. You can learn much more about how you can join me and other listeners at WDET.org slash Spain. Okay, uh, this hour we are talking about public health infrastructure, the way that we treat it the way we invest in it, the way that we focus on it. Uh, we wanna hear from you as well. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Tell us about your biggest public health concerns here in Southeast Michigan. What are the things that you worry that we're not doing well or properly? Uh, you can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Heather in Beverly Hills. Heather, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thank you, Stephen. Um, so, I, I this is very sensitive for me. I apologize if I misspeak. I um, I don't know. I I don't know the right words. Disgusted, um, sickened myself daily with upset and anxiety over this issue. I believe our priorities and values are, of course, they're way off. And it's I want to say. Uh, you know, the root cause is the patriarch, but that implies gender. And I want to keep it gender neutral and say, it's it's not patriarch as in masculine, but it's, it's mindsets. Let's just call it this mindsets that are rooted in what we call patriarch. It's excessive greed and individualism. You mentioned, you know, our culture, if you study multicultural pluralism, our culture is very high in indiv- individual selfishness. And then we have this of mindsets of greed and accomplishment and competition instead of collaboration if we are to prioritize clean air clean water uh good food to me i like to say that's more safety and health feminine but again it's you know it, it's, it's it's the mindset of having priorities and values that are are other centered as well and, and, and more balanced with other centeredness than what we have and more more prioritizing safety and health over things like luxury and convenience and uh, excessiveness. And to me, along with clean air, water, and food, we've got to increase access to education because in this patriarchal excessive competition and greed, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation. We are going to have to increase it. We're going to keep things the same in terms of greed, We're going to have to increase the access to education beyond high school for each citizen so they can Mm. critically reason and critically think through because – and I'll end this because I know I'm going on too long. I respect your speakers. They mentioned screening and being a part of prevention. That's a hot button for me. That's an example of the greed in an industry, the medical industry, Mm. taking the word, the concept of prevention and spewing out misinformation, causing us to believe prevention Is what they call it which what they're doing is early diagnostics that's Hmm. not prevention Hmm. now I look every day and interact with people who have extreme morbid sickness visible not only physical but mental and they're not being helped because of greed and so we're gonna have to either reduce the greed by changing yeah sorry I'm sorry you know
1: that's yeah no that's uh, I, I think it's a really great and important point to raise I'm really glad you called I do want to give our guests a chance to to respond, Dr. Fairchild, uh, how do you answer Heather's concerns?
2: Well, first let me say thank you, Heather. And I, I I, feel your frustration and it's it's an important theme that we have to grapple with. So we, we tend to think about, well, what's the evidence of what we need to do and separate that from, from the values and the things that we prioritize. And that has particular roots in this country. It really takes hold in the 1970s, this notion And it has to do with some of the successes in public health. It seemed that we had banished infectious diseases and we saw the rise of chronic diseases. Those were framed as lifestyle choice diseases. Individual responsibility, personal responsibility was seen as the primary way um, to to, to achieve further improvements in population. And population health, and that that frame is very powerful, and it and it takes strong hold. It begins to shape research. It definitely shapes, um, drives money into the medical care system. It helps to drive money away from the 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 public the public health system, and it's it's something that we have to that we have to grapple with as a nation. and and the, my hope is that people like you will share that understanding with others because we do have to have a shared framework. and that's if we look back at history, that's what we had in that moment before World War II. We had this understanding it was social context that mattered, and we need to we need to we need to uh, embrace a shared narrative around that again.
1: Uh, Dr. Miranda, I wonder if you have an answer for,
3: for Heather. I, sure, there's, you know, um, public health prevention has many different levels, and, and I agree there are certainly barriers into screening as, as prevention efforts. And, and I wholeheartedly agree that um, we need greater efforts into education, public health stands you know, when we were talking about policy efforts, um, policies that increase access to childcare. So especially women of color can, um, who are disproportionately faced with those types of burdens that prevent them from accessing higher education or um, other employment opportunities. Um, those, those are public health policy efforts um, to, to address some of these fundamental issues, um, getting college paid for, um, to where more populations have easier access, um, into that education. Um, but working to professionalize and build capacity of all communities, regardless of level of education is equally important. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to hold it all within institutions of higher learning. We can actually work to professionalize, um, community members where they are, um, and increase, Um, income, which Hmm. assists
1: with everything. Yeah. So before we have to end, uh, Professor Miranda, I want you to talk just a little about HEAL, the organization that you founded and direct at uh, Wayne State University and how critical that is to this conversation about public health.
3: Thanks, Stephen. So so the goal of HEAL is to partner communities with evidence-based approaches to train organizations with the skills that are needed for their sustainability down the road, gain access to additional funding. Um, you, you really need to use evidence-based metrics to demonstrate the impact of your work. And we have, we have a number of um, nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations who are out there within the communities doing amazing work and their findings aren't disseminated um, or they are perhaps not maximizing the limited resources that they have by using um, evidence-based approaches and the work that they are doing. And so um, our goal is to really sort of bring the systems change strategy in and we really want to um, transfer power back into the communities. A lot of... Community academic relationships um, leave community members um, as co upon the university, where you know we can actually build build their capacity to where they can be sustainable in their work um, hmm. on their own, just with the support of perhaps academic ambassadors to help in um, specific areas of expertise as necessary. So those are those are really the basic goals of.
1: Of you, yeah. Okay, so uh, Dr. Amy Fairchild and Dr. Trisha Miranda Hartstuff. It was really great to have uh, all both of you here for uh, this conversation about public health. Thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit today.
2: Thank you, Stephen. Hmm. Thank you.
1: Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with former senior World Bank official. Anti corruption activist and author Frank Vogel about his new book, The Enablers How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, Endangering Our Democracy. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian. And Will Sessions. And another reminder go to wdet.org Spain to find out how to join me in one of my favorite countries in April of 2022. We are going to go to Madrid and Cordoba, Valencia and Barcelona. It'll be a really great time. This is 1019 WDET FM, your connection to news, music and conversation. We'll talk again. Tomorrow.